0: He has been the executive director of CB Northwest for the past 18 years. Uh, today, he serves as lead pastor of Grace Baptist Church in White Salmon, Washington. Would you join me in welcoming Mark Hafner? Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be here. I get the, the best assignment of all. He, he basically told me to tell stories about rural church ministry, and, uh, and so that, that is just a, a great assignment. Uh, It is a deep, deep um, love that I have and that is for rural churches around the world. Um, I've had the privilege of uh, getting to be involved in rural church ministry ever since I was in high school. Uh, I got married right out of high school. My wife and I have been married for over 40 years and um, uh, we started our journey together as a married couple taking ministry teams into rural places. Uh, doing vacation Bible schools and, and uh, building projects and all kinds of things. Our first um, trip, we've been married less than a year. Uh, we took 20 uh, college students in vans, went to Alaska, and uh, worked through all of our CB churches up in Alaska doing vacation Bible schools and building projects. Uh, on the way up, we, we stayed in churches all the way through Canada, and on our way back we stayed in churches all the way through canada and that was the beginning for me of just an appreciation of what the local church can do in rural communities um, throughout the world uh, after that, my wife and I had the privilege of leading a ministry team into um, Italy after the earthquake that took place in 1979 uh, that devastated an area about the size of the Willamette Valley. Over a million people lost their homes in that earthquake. And uh, so we had the privilege of going into Italy and building homes for people who'd lost their homes and uh, beginning to again see. Uh, what God does in rural places, as um, the church begins to um, flex its muscles in uh, giving care and relief and love uh, to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Uh, finished um, my uh, my work in uh, my undergraduate, my graduate degree. My wife also finished hers, and uh, we were asked to go out to a little place called Prairie City, Oregon. And uh, we were asked to fill the pulpit out there. And so my wife and I drove out there, and we filled the pulpit for a Sunday. They were without a pastor. And um, on our way out of that community, my wife looked at me, and she says, "Uh, is God saying to you what I think he's saying to me? And I said, man, I hope not. (laughs) Because if he is, we're going to Prairie City. And sure enough, uh, one month later, uh, we moved to Prairie City, Oregon, sold our construction company. And um, uh, there we were in, in Prairie City, Oregon, a uh, community of about 1,100 people uh, in a county of, of, at that time, 5,000 people, uh, huge metropolitan area. And, uh, um, and there we found ourselves in the heart of eastern Oregon, cattle, ranching, uh, forest service, uh, the three big uh, pillars of, of the community, and never the twain shall meet. And, uh, and so, we, we found ourselves trying to uh, figure out how to minister in that rural environment. Um, when I went there, the church was about 30, and um, a, a, an amazing group of people. Um, and within about four or five months, I uh, had the privilege of growing that church to about 10. And uh, uh, what had happened was uh, there was a number of people in the church who kept coming up to me after a Sunday, and and they would ask the question, "Are you gonna, are you gonna talk from the Bible every Sunday?" And I thought that was a good thing, and I said, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna open up God's Word every Sunday." And uh, they said, "Yeah, that's probably not what we would like." And uh, uh, so they left, and um, um, and. I don't know if you've ever gotten a salary from 10 people, uh, but it, it just doesn't really work very well. And uh, uh, so my wife and I were basically living off of the resources that we brought with us, and all of a sudden I realized, man, i got to figure out how to make an income. And uh, so we started uh, doing construction work. That was my background. My undergrad work is in architecture and had been in building um, all of my life growing up. And um, um, and so, we just started to swing a hammer, started to bid on jobs, and, and it, 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 all of a sudden, I realized what I was doing. I was literally taking work away from local guys. And uh, because of my contacts back in uh, Eugene and in Portland, uh, we could buy materials, and we could get stuff that those guys couldn't get and so we could underbid them and and pretty soon uh we were making money and being hated at the same time and so one day i was doing a job and one of the local contractors came up and said hey um looks like you're putting me out of business can i work for you i said what do you mean i'm putting you out of business he says we can't compete you got all those contacts You bring in resource. um, Yeah. You put us out of business. And I thought, man, that's not why I came to, to Grant County. That's not why I came to Prairie City. And so we began to just make those resources available to those guys and began to work for them and with them and... Um, began to build relationships with some of the contractors that were out in that area. Uh, They couldn't believe that we did it, um, but we weren't making any money again. And uh, so we bought a ranch out in Prairie City, and uh, that's when we began uh, our ranching career. When you think about rural church ministry, when you think about this whole idea of the uh, the, the, the mechanics of of coming into a, a rural community, there's a few things that are absolutely essential that we always understand. Number one is there is a historical spiritual footprint in that community. Uh, you are not the first person of God who has showed up in that community. And if you don't come to terms with what that spiritual footprint is, then you can get yourself into a, a, a lot of trouble in the way in which you try to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other thing about a a footprint in a community is you've all heard the old saying is you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Uh, So when you come into a a rural community, what you discover really quickly is that you are an outsider. And it usually takes about 40 years uh, to not be an outsider. And so you're, you're, you're really going to learn quickly that for basically your whole ministry, um, there is a, a group of people in that community who will always see you as somebody who came in. And you've got you to gotta navigate that because you are actually a part of a whole bunch of other people who came in. And so um, you get labeled in that culture and in that Context and pretty soon uh, you have to figure out how do I bridge into all of these different uh, kinds of people that are in that rural community to try to get a context for that. When I was ranching out there in Prairie City, I'd never ranched before, so I didn't I didn't know the first thing about ranching and. Um, but I knew we had to make an income, and I knew we had to figure out how to raise our adopted kids, and and, um, and so this became our um, our way of doing that. And I was very fortunate because prior to buying the ranch, we would go out and, and work with ranchers. We would help them uh, brand their cattle, work their cattle. Uh, we'd help them move their cattle. And... Um, Um, And we we spent a lot of time just going from ranch to ranch, meeting guys and volunteering our labor and uh, just getting to know uh, the community. Because when a branding is taking place or when you're moving cattle, uh, you help one another. And so many of the ranchers show up to help and so you begin to figure out who the families are you begin to figure out where the ranches are you begin to figure out a a whole bunch of those kinds of things in that environment however in our community we had a gal who was the vet uh, a a woman vet and she was an atheist and she was um, uh, a strong woman uh, strong in every way, physically strong, emotionally strong, had a strong mouth. Um, she, was, uh, she was just uh, a, a woman vet who was um, incredibly good at what she did. She was one of the best vets uh, in uh, eastern Oregon and highly desired. But she was a woman, and uh, after we would work cattle, um, and the guys would go to eat lunch, if you start thinking of social strata, the two lowest people in a ranching culture are a woman vet and a pastor. And, uh, <laughs> and so those two people are, are at the bottom of the, of the barrel when it comes to um, those that you want to associate with. So I spent a lot of time with the woman vet um, because nobody wanted to eat with us or drink coffee with us. And uh, so we spent a lot of time talking about, about uh, farming, about ranching, about uh, the community and all that kind of stuff. And then I bought the ranch. And so I went to Julie and I said, hey, Julie, I said, um, I know you got a company called Beef for Profit. Um, what would it take to have you teach me to ranch? And she she looked at me and she said, you got to be kidding. You really want to get into this industry. All these guys are going bankrupt and you want to get into the industry. I said, yeah, it's it's the only thing that I know to do. And so she said, well, if you'll do everything that I say, then I'll be happy to coach you. And uh, so I said, okay, well, what's the first thing? She says, you can't borrow any money. I thought, okay, I'm good with that. Uh, I, I don't like borrowing money anyway which means you're going to start with two cows, okay? Because that's all the money I got, right? And so we got two cows, and she said, I want you to bring your two cows over to my ranch, and I'll let your cows be covered by my bull. And pretty soon we started to be able to add a few cows, and we had some calves, and pretty soon we were up to 10, 15. Then we were able to get our first bull, and, and pretty soon we'd grown the ranch to where we had about 75 pair and, um, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful thing. There was one day when we were at the fair. Okay, we're talking rural, right? So you're at the county fair. And we're at the county fair, and my kids were showing their beef. They had their, their steers, and uh, they were showing their beef, and they all came from our, our cattle. And four other uh, kids from the school were showing our beef. They had bought some of our steers, and so we had eight steers in um, in in the 4-H FFA cattle um, show there in, in Grant County. And um, after the show, they do a thing that's called a pen, and they judge a pen of cattle. And uh, the uniformity of those cattle, the um, Um, the marketability of those cattle or what they're judged on, and um, we won. Our cattle won. And there were ranchers whose cattle were in with all the other kids. And when those ranchers figured out that those were the The preacher's cattle (laughs) ticked them off. And they were in the barn where all the cattle were, and they were cussing the judge up one side and down the other side. And a rancher by the name of Russell walked up to those guys And Russell would never let a kid buy any of his cattle for 4-H or FFA. He just didn't didn't want to be a part of that. But he was the largest landholder in Grant County. Probably owned more cattle than, than anybody in Grant County. And he walked up to all these guys. And he knew them all personally because he's fifth generation Grant County rancher. He knew them all. And he listened to them and they turned to him and said what they thought about the preacher's cattle and the judge. And he looked at them and he said this. He says, I just got one thing I want to say to you guys. Those are the best cattle that were in the show. And I want to tell you, that preacher hasn't borrowed a dime. I went from a bottom feeder, to the pastor rancher. My point is, God is the one who created that opportunity. I didn't know squat about ranching. I didn't know how to navigate the, the, the fair. I didn't, know, I didn't know, you know how to win those ranchers. But God, out of that faithfulness, created opportunities that gave the opportunity to now be a person who could be listened to. Our church at that time went from about forty people to about three hundred. Yeah, that's when all of a sudden the culture of our church changed because of the credibility of not just me as a pastor, but of those who were a part of our church. Well, why? Because we weren't just ranchers, but we were loggers, and we were forest service workers, and we were the support people and the the school teachers. And so all of a sudden what we began to understand was that Within a rural culture, you have to understand the social dynamic of what's going on. You got to understand what's going on in the schools. You got to understand what's going on in the major industries. You got to understand what's going on at the grange. You got to understand what it is that that creates the fiber for that rural community. Things like uh, FFA, 4-H. Understanding where people are selling things and where they're buying things, who they need in their world to be successful. So when we think about success in the rural context, one of the things that's really important to understand is that in most metropolitan areas, and most suburban areas, and even urban center areas, success is really about profit. Success is about gain, more people, more money, more buildings, more territory. Do I have more today than I had yesterday? And if you can see that progression, then you go, that's success. In most rural communities that are uh, especially agricultural based, the picture of success is can I farm again? next year. In other words, it's got nothing to do with how much I've gained. It has to do with, do I have enough to be able to start again next year? So, for the cattleman, did I sell enough cattle to pay the bank so that I could survive for another year? For the, the crop, did I have enough crop to be able to plant the next year? And so, if you have the wrong definition of success as a rural pastor, then how you motivate towards ministry uh, will be received differently based upon what is the model of success of the people that are around you. So not only do you have a spiritual footprint, not only do you have a social economic footprint. But you also have to understand what is the mores that drive the way in which they see that which is successful. Rural ministry is all about exegeting the culture in which you're in. And and I want to just try to walk through a couple of ideas here. The world has changed rurally. The rural world is not what it used to be primarily because of the way in which people work today. In other words, people can move out to rural areas, and primarily because of of the internet and because of companies that now let their employees work from home, you can pretty well do any business from anywhere. So what you get in rural communities is you get what's called old money and new money. Old money has to do with the landowners, the people who own the farms, they own the timber, they own the ground. Uh, They've been there for generations and they have a certain level of wealth because they own everything. It doesn't mean that they live wealthy, it just means that they have the footprint in the county. Uh, because of their longevity in the the culture. But then you have these guys who come in to the rural areas, and they're new money. They're being paid by a company like Boeing or something like that, and they can work out in a rural area, and they bring some large paychecks with them, and so they buy a piece of the old, and they build a really nice house on it. And all of a sudden, what happens is a group of people begin to say, you know, that's a pretty nice place to live, and I can buy a piece of that. And pretty soon, you start getting old money, selling what they have to new money, and pretty soon what happens is the culture of the community finds itself in a collision. Because all of that new money is bringing in a whole different set of mores as it relates to success. It's bringing in a whole new value system. And now all of a sudden, what has been is actually gaining from what's coming in, but all of a sudden, it's a trade-off because they realize that they're losing the rural that they had. How do you shepherd new money and old money? How do you shepherd those who come in who have a... A social agenda that is highly diverse from the historical social agenda of that community. How do you shepherd the politics of that? What does that mean in the school system? What does that mean in local government? What does that mean for the the police? When you go and you start to shepherd in a rural community, you have to come to terms with what is it that I've just entered into. I'm at one of the, the, the probably the, the highest new money, old money places that I've ever seen. I live in White Salmon, Washington. Community of uh, White Salmon proper is less than 2,000 people. Area around us is about seven to 8,000 people. Okay? I cross the river into Hood River and now all of a sudden the, the population starts to, to grow Uh, quite a bit, especially as you head up towards the Dalles. But on our side of the river, it's still pretty rural. But Boeing bought out in situ, which is the number one drone building, manufacturing, designing company in the world. That is in our town. So now, Boeing money has come into our community, which is forest, cherries, all kinds of, of um, fruit trees it's one of the, the, the greatest fruit producing areas uh, in the United States probably even in the world and, um, and there is this tremendous tension in white salmon and I've got both of them in my church how do you shepherd that how do you shepherd that Uh, our speaker this morning highlighted something that I want to highlight because it is, in my opinion, the most important thing that you can gain from a rural conference. And that is this concept of shepherding. You have to understand the principles of being a shepherd if you're going to be successful in growing a church in a rural community. Shepherding is the most important thing that you can ever do as a pastor in a rural community. And the reason is, is because as a shepherd in a rural community, what you find yourself doing is you find yourself uh, becoming the conscience for your community. All of a sudden, you find yourself as a person who starts to help everybody figure out where they're at from a moral, ethical perspective. All of a sudden, what you realize is, I don't shepherd a church. I shepherd a county. All of a sudden I realize I am the shepherd to the sheriffs and the police and the troopers. All of a sudden you find you are the name that they call whenever there's a memorial service that needs to be done. All of a sudden you find that you have all these members that you didn't even know were a part of your church when their kids need to be married. Uh, you, you, You find out all these things that you are that you didn't even know you were. And pretty soon, there's a prayer that needs to be done, and you do it. Um, Pretty soon, you're the person that they look to in the county, and all of a sudden, you realize that your spiritual influence begins to be a covering of ethic within your, your community, within that area. The flip side of that is that when you begin to understand that, you realize that multi-site is not a new concept. Multi-site churches have been going on forever, as long as there's been rural communities. They're called circuit-riding preachers, right? In other words, uh, if you work in a community and you all of a sudden start to see your church being the gospel throughout the county, then pretty soon you have points of light throughout the whole county. And all of a sudden it's you and your elders that are servicing those points of light. In the middle of my ministry at Prairie City, we had 23 places throughout the county where we did gospel ministry. 13 of them were multi site church. Some of 10 down a road that went to IZ, a group of ranchers. Up on top to a Dixie, a group of loggers and a few road crew guys who lived up there. All of a sudden, you found yourself out at a place called Fox, and then Dayville and then a place called Long Creek and and all of a sudden what happened is you began to realize that those places needed shepherding and you're the guy and pretty soon you realize as a shepherd in a rural community that you're dead if you don't reproduce shepherds if you're not multiplying yourself then you're you're in trouble And so your primary responsibility is how do I identify, train, mentor, and empower next generation shepherds? Because as your ministry begins to to blossom, you will have points of light and the county is too big. You can't get to all those points of light. And so you've got to send your elders out into those points of light. And pretty soon you find that the footprint of your church has now like a root system has gone out from the place in which you started and it's beginning to impact every facet of culture in a county. And the minute that begins to happen, you're in a war with the evil one. Because now you have brought the gospel to every corner of your county and it's beginning to light it up you're beginning to deal with generational sin. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. When I uh, pastored in one of our rural communities, uh, I came to the church, and when I was there, um, all of a sudden it was in two weeks, 90% of the offerings were gone. That's a rude awakening, right? Okay. I mean, you know, it, it's tough, you know, you're passing the plate, people are given an offering, and then all of a sudden, 90% of it goes away. Well, what in the world happened? So then one of your elders comes up to you. At that time, they were deacons. Uh, they came up to you, and they said, you know what? I, there's just not enough money to pay. Uh, maybe it's time for you to leave. You're kind of going, whoa, what just happened here? And you don't have a clue. And all of a sudden, you realize that you are the fourth pastor, that all of a sudden 90% of the money went away, and they had to leave. Fortunately for my wife and I, we were able to say, that's all right. We We don't need your paycheck. God had blessed my wife and I to where we didn't need the church's paycheck to be able to pastor. So all of a sudden, the the people that were trying to remove us, their greatest strategy was gone. So they picked a different strategy. That is, we'll just quit. And if we'll leave, then there won't be anybody and and he'll have to leave. So showed up Sunday, and whoa, where is everybody? They're gone. So we started to pray and okay, God, what do we do? So this guy got drunk. Started beating up on his wife. So the police officer, a good friend of mine, calls me and says, hey, I need some help. So we go in on a domestic, and so we go in on this domestic, and we get this guy, and uh, we get him over to the church, and he's in my office, name's Roger, and, And Roger has a history of doing this. And after a certain period of time of spending time with Roger, Roger prays to receive Jesus Christ. Comes to know Christ as his Savior. He's a logger and a powder monkey. He blows up things for logging companies. That's what he does for a a job. So we needed to put a new furnace in, and we needed a hole in our foundation (laughs) of our church. And Roger says, hey, I can put that hole in there for you. And I said, Roger, I said, man, dude, I, I trust you, Roger, but here's my problem. Um, in our local newspaper, Pastor Blows Up Church is just not a good <laughs> title. And, uh, and so Roger was actually pretty put out by the fact that I, I wouldn't let him blow the hole in our foundation. Um, but as Roger uh, came to know Christ, uh, we were probably about three weeks into his salvation, and I said, Roger, uh, I'd really like to meet with you uh, in the morning before you go to work, um, just to kind of do a Bible study with you, and, and to start getting you grounded in God's word, and he looked at me, he said, You're, you want to get together before I go to work? I said, yeah, and he says, okay, how much time do we need in the morning? I said, about an hour, he says, okay, I'll see you at 3.30, 30. Say that again, Roger. Yeah, I go to work at 4.30. I'm a logger. Smartest thing I ever did was getting up at 3.30. Day after day after day. As opposed to saying, yeah, that's too early. Can't do that. So I met with Roger. Roger was a unique personality. I was sitting on his couch one day. We were talking about God's word and he said, don't move. I said, What? He said, don't move. And he grabbed a stick with a little round thing on the end, he reached between my legs and pulled out a rattlesnake. And he says, I wondered where that went last night. Um, he had this glass case with rattlesnakes in it. Man, was that a bad hair day. And, and that's the kind of guys, well, Roger started coming to church every single Sunday, okay, with all 10 of us, right? And, and you would preach, and you would ask those rhetorical questions, and he would He'd answer them. And pretty soon people started coming not to hear me preach, but to hear Roger give his answers. And we literally started to have people come, and people started getting saved. People started coming, and God grew a church while all those other people had left. And then some of those people said, why did we leave? And so they started to come back, and then all of a sudden the reason showed itself a leader in the church had a daughter who got pregnant outside a wedlock hauled her into Ben to get an abortion brought her back family secret every so often she would start to feel guilty about that wanted to get some help with that start getting close to the pastor and the pastor's wife as soon as the father figured out that she might spill the beans pastor was gone I was now the fifth one in line. Generational sin. Guys, you do not know what you're up against. I had no clue. Neither did the four guys before us. We had to go back and pay restitution to every one of those pastors. All of them. The church didn't pay their moving expense. The church didn't take care of them. Uh, We were a scourge to those people. We made restitution to every one of those pastors. That generational sin got exposed. The daughter was able to find forgiveness. The family then had to come to terms with everything they had done. The mother could never embrace it. The father openly repented. And God began to build into the old community when that generational sin was broken. So, the next point that I want to make rural ministry at its core is a conversation with Jesus Christ by its shepherds. You don't pray, you don't spend time on your knees. You don't lift up your church, your community, your people, day after day after day, week after week, month after month. Then you're in deep weeds. Because you have no clue what the generational sin is in that rural environment. And the Spirit of God through the gospel is going to begin to unearth that. And if you are not spiritually attuned and ready when God unearths that, then your ability to survive is going to be compromised. As you identify, train, mentor, and empower next generation elders, as you identify other spiritual people in the community who are on the journey with you in other rural churches, as you develop that prayer strategy and you're faithful to that prayer strategy, then you'll knock the gates of hell down. Rural church shepherding is only lonely if you see yourself as the shepherd. But if you realize that Jesus Christ is the shepherd, and you realize that your responsibility is to reproduce yourself into other people who can shepherd, rural ministry never has to be lonely. But if you're the guy, the number one guy, you're the, you know, you're the pastor, if you you wear that mantle, you'll find yourself very lonely. The last thing that I want to just share with you before we go to lunch is as you think about defeating strongholds, I had a, a lady in my church. Her name was Dorothy. Uh, probably every church has a Dorothy. I don't know. But, uh, but Dorothy's uh, husband, Mel, uh, they were a ranching family. They were moving cattle on Highway 26. And a semi-truck was coming down the hill. It didn't see the, uh, the sign that cattle were in the road. Hit her husband. He was killed on his horse on Highway 26. So she was a widow. And she was uh, elderly when I got there and um, I'd pastored in the church for about three years. And one day uh, Dorothy walked up to me and she says, "Uh, I think it's about time for you to leave. And uh, I looked at Dorothy and I said, Dorothy, um, I'll make you a deal. I will leave the day you become nice. Dorothy looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, we're going to be together for a long time, aren't we? (laughs) Dorothy was a Blazer fan. So, in our community at 12 o'clock, the fire horn went off. So, if you weren't done with your sermon by 12 o'clock, you were done anyway, because the fire alarm went off, and... uh, and so, you know, everybody kind of went, okay, it's 12 o'clock, there's the fire horn. And uh, uh, so Dorothy, when the fire horn would go off, didn't matter where we were at in the service, she was got, got up and started heading home because she wanted to make sure she was there to watch the, the blazers on the TV. And uh, she had her seat. Um, if we had visitors who sat in her seat, she'd walk up to them and say, hey, you're in my seat, you need to get out of there. Uh, she was just mean. <laughs> um, but she was a... Uh, a kind of mean. Uh, in other words, she came by it naturally. She was a, she was a, she was a rancher's wife. She worked with cowboys. She, she cooked, and, and she made sure that they did what they were supposed to do. And now her husband's gone, and so she's trying to run a ranch, and she's trying to uh, wrangle all of these cowboys and make it all happen. So she was just mean. She was tough. She was strong. And I loved her. As you know, I have a lot of kids, and one of my daughters came down with a rare form of skin cancer. Another daughter had to have her jaw move back a half an inch. She didn't have any teeth that, taut, that touched, and so they had to rebuild her, whole, her jaw. Um, my father-in-law came down with uh, uh, terminal cancer, and... Uh, they cared for my wife's grandma, so we, 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 we just got to the point as a family where we couldn't handle our family medical stuff from the rural community, so we had to move into the Portland area. Um, so I basically thought I'd pick up my nail belt and go work in Portland until we got through these medical things and then go back to Prairie City. And my elders came and sat down with me and said, yeah... Um, you're not coming back. I said, really? I said, yeah. We don't need you anymore. We've got pastors. We've got elders. We're releasing you. And we believe that God's leading you into other ministries uh, to help churches. Hardest day of my life. My kids had cancer, I had medical bills, had to sell every one of my cows to pay for my daughter's cancer surgery. Picked up a church in Milwaukee, Oregon, sat down in the office, first day on the job, and I wept. I didn't want to be there. Portland, Oregon. (laughs) Who in their right mind would want to go into Portland, Oregon? And yet that's where God put me. My point, gentlemen, is when I left Prairie City, Dorothy called me. Said, preacher, she never called me pastor, she never called me Mark. Uh, She she never called me anything but preacher. She said, Preacher, I want you to come to my house. So I drove out to their ranch, and and you gotta understand she's about 80 years old at that point and sat down at her dining room table and she put you know a mug of coffee in front of me and it was it was cold. It was it was (laughs) she's she's mean. And I took a sip and she kind of smiled. And she said, oh, would, would you like that heated? And I said, yeah, that'd be a good idea, Dorothy. You know? So she took my coffee and went back over the heated. She's a great lady. She says, I got something for you. I said, well, thank you, Dorothy. And uh, she says, um, it's by the front door. And I want you to grab it on your way out. Okay. Well, what is it? She says, "Well, it's there. It's got your name on it." Okay. So we finished our coffee, we talked a little bit, talked about the Blazers and uh, and I got up to leave and I walked to the front door. It was her <clears throat> It was her husband's cowboy hat. <laughs> I picked up that hat I still have it in my office today I thought I can't I can't walk out this door without going back so I walked back in the kitchen she says I told you to leave (laughs) I said Dorothy I, I, I can't leave without just telling you how thankful I am for that and this is what she said to me. This is what shepherding is, gentlemen. She said, you're the only man who ever treated me like my husband did. You've always told me the truth. You've always told me to stop being mean. She said, my husband was a gentle man, a loving man, and a leader in the church. And she says, The reason it's so hard for me is because when you get up, you remind me of my husband. He planted this in church. I didn't know that until that day. Shepherding, guys. Sometimes they're mean. Sometimes they're atheists. Sometimes they're a group of cattlemen who think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Sometimes they're teachers. Sometimes they're forest service workers, loggers, and ranchers. 1993, the slogan was cow free in 93 had a huge forest fire out in Grant County. The environmentalists went after that circumstance, shut down the forest so the loggers couldn't get in and get the wood. The ranchers were being told to take their cattle out of the forest. And everybody saw it as the Forest Service's fault. And the ranchers and the loggers showed up at our Forest Service office, locked and loaded. And it was a Forest Service worker, a rancher, and a logger, and myself. On that day, that stopped a county from doing something really, really stupid. The title of my message the next Sunday was, Check Your Guns at the door (laughs) how do we get along in a rural community as a pastor with the diversity that comes forth you've got to figure it out and you can only figure it out through the eyes of shepherding and on your knees Amen? amen let me pray for you lord jesus um i don 't know of any greater privilege than to get up and tell stories, um, so I thank you for this opportunity lord i 'm old and uh, been doing this for a long time, and I look out over this audience at a bunch of young guys, and I am so thankful for them. So Lord, I just want to pray a blessing on them. I want to pray that you would empower them with uh, a propensity to be able to shepherd and shepherd well. I want to pray that you would give them just inroads into culture with the gospel so that their ministries might spread like root system throughout their county to where all of a sudden they become multi-site, multi-generational. And Lord, that the influence of their church would make a difference. So God, I just thank you for them, and I commit them into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.